everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode number 37, and I am Michael Bradley. And we've got another great episode ahead, folks, because this time we'll be looking at Superman number four. While the previous three issues of the title have been mostly comprised of reprints, starting with Superman number four, the book changes format to present four completely brand new stories, and somewhat notable ones at that. To mark what is kind of a special occasion, in my opinion anyway, I've invited on the show yet another friend and fellow Superman podcaster, so it is my pleasure to introduce this episode's special guest host, Mr. Billy Hogan. Hi, Michael. Um, I'm uh, glad to be with you today. I'm glad you could come on. Billy is host of Superman Fan Podcast. While it's not the longest-running Superman podcast, since Billy's show is weekly like this one, um, it is, I think, the most prolific. Uh, Billy recently passed the 200-episode mark with his show. Yeah, um, it's 200... uh well, some of the episodes I did is multi-part, so I'm up the to episode 192, but that's only because I would have, like, episode X number or whatever. Right. But, yeah, it's just over 200 individual episodes. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about your show and how it came about? Because when you started, I think the only podcast, the only other Superman podcast out there was uh, Radio KAL, wasn't it? Yeah, um... Well, I, when um, after I started, you know, we got a computer and getting on the internet, um, I got interested with podcasting when I found, you know, after iTunes appeared and uh, I found out that there was a Windows version of iTunes. And so I started listening to podcasts. And the first one that caught my attention was uh, uh, Fanboy Radio which is down out in Texas uh, from the KTCU uh, college radio station. And then I did a search for Superman podcast since he's my favorite character, and I was uh, surprised to see that there wasn't much out there. Um, The only one I found uh, about, you know, the Superman and comic books was Radio KAL and their weekly video news podcast, uh, Speeding Bulletins. And there were a few out there that were in um, specifically about Smallville, like Starkville, House of L, and a few others. But there wasn't really anything about Superman, and so that's what made me decide to do one. And for the first couple of years, it was just a um, – I'll just pick a topic just to introduce people uh, about different aspects of Superman's as a supporting cast and history just to uh, – serve as kind of an introduction to people who you know maybe aren't familiar with Superman and kind of hopefully um, kind of pique their interest about the Man of Steel. And, and more recently, you've started doing the Silver Age. You, you started looking at Silver Age books, right? Yeah. Uh, well, first, there, you know, after Michael Bailey and uh, Jeffrey Taylor began from Crisis to Crisis and then uh, – you're, you started your podcast, and then um, um, I think was it John Wilson does the Golden Age Superman, mm-hmm. and then you know Charlie uh, Niemeyer did Superman in the Bronze Age, and uh, 
uh, J. David Weeder did um, uh, Superman Forever Radio. And so all you guys were covering different eras of Superman comics, but except for the Silver Age. And, you know, I'm almost 51, so I grew up on a Silver Age comic book. So I thought, well, you know, um, I've done a few episodes that were kind of in the uh, era, the uh, from crisis to crisis era. And so since there was a Superman podcast for all the other eras, I said, well, it might be a good opportunity for me to just focus on the Silver Age because uh, uh, even though I've you know read quite a few comic books uh, as a kid, I didn't really read uh, Superman comic books steadily. It was just you know once in a while when I'd uh, either my dad would buy a comic book off the rack at a Jiffy store or the grocery store or trade comics with a friend. So this is the first – really the first opportunity I've had to really go through and read all of these Superman comic books during the Silver Age. So this has been a lot of fun. Right. And with the showcase volumes that they've put out now, they've reprinted you know, hundreds of stories from that era. So it's, it makes them really accessible. Yeah, and so far I've got uh, four of the Superman ones, and one of the uh, I've got one of the Super- Superman family and one of the world's finest. You said you were you read comics as a kid, right? Yeah. How did you initially get into reading comics? Um, they they were just around uh, even before I knew knew learned how to read. Um, you know, my dad would uh, we uh, my first. Uh, vivid memories were living in Tampa, Florida when my dad uh, was finishing his uh, career in the Air Force at McDill Air Force Base and he would bring home you know comic books or toys and they have just always been around um, he, he even would get me uh, buy me some of the uh, little paperback reprints of the old old mad magazine stories oh yeah uh, but uh what really helped uh, uh, ingrain uh, Superman in my mind were the uh, reruns of the 1950 Superman TV show. Oh, mm-hmm. George Reeves. Yeah, and I even had a uh, Superman uh, costume I used to wear a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, wear it. Um, by the time I really remember, you know, playing with it, uh, I think the S either had come off or washed out, and I'd lost the cape, so I would use my dad's red bandana handkerchief as uh, as a cape. Oh, that's a cool story. Now, you didn't watch the George Reeves series when it originally aired. No, that no. ended a couple of years before I was born. Yeah, I was, I, I was so. born in 1960. Right. So it was... Uh, Ended about fifty seven, fifty eight, you know, and then I guess the story goes they were going to uh, film a seventh season, and then uh, his uh, when George Reeves died, that you know, per well, that put a stop to those plans. Right. And then John Hamilton died shortly because they there was um, there has been some stories that they considered doing a like a Daily Planet series, just focusing on. Lois and Jimmy and, and Perry White, but then John Hamilton died shortly after that, so that put the you know kibosh on that too. But um. <laughs> hi, folks. Michael here. 
I really hate to interrupt the show, but I just wanted to clarify something that I said when I was recording with Billy. Normally, I would just wait and correct it on a later show, but there is so much misinformation that surrounds certain aspects of Superman history that I really felt it was important to correct it here. Production wrapped on what would be the final season of Adventures of Superman in November 1957, and those episodes were aired in February, March, and April of 1958. John Hamilton, who portrayed Perry White in the series, died on October 15, 1958. By the following spring, Kellogg's was still willing to sponsor the show, and producers figured the show's popularity was still viable enough to try for one more season of 26 episodes. George Reeves reportedly agreed to return, and was happy to do so according to several sources. Per Noel Neal, the producers planned to bring in Pierre Watkin, who portrayed Perry White in the serial, to replace Hamilton. Unfortunately, on June 16, 1959, Reeves was found dead of a gunshot wound to the head. Following this, another series was proposed, one either focusing on Jimmy Olsen or the entire Daily Planet staff. I've heard it both ways. They planned on using stock footage of Reeves in the show, and because of this, the idea was promptly shot down by Jack Larson and undoubtedly Noel Neal. So, sorry for the mix-up in the chronology there, and again, apologies for having to interrupt the show. I just thought it was important to correct it now, rather than risk even more misinformation being spread around. So that said, back to the show. Anyway, when whenever I have a guest on, I always like to ask them this next question. So, what is your favorite Superman story? Well, there's a couple that are pretty close up there. Um... I think my favorite Luthor story is I don't remember the exact number, but the story is called the Einstein Connection. Uh huh. That's from the. I was just looking at that the other day online. I don't remember the issue number offhand, but that's yep. a Bronze Age. Yeah, that was right the the last year before um, uh, they ended the old continuity and uh, restarted with John Byrne. It was that last year of the old Superman uh, comic books. Uh-huh. Um, and then, of course, uh, the whole All-Star Superman series. Um, and I also like the two Alan Moore stories uh, for The Man Who Has Everything and um, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. But my all-time favorite Superman story was um, Superman 167, which I first read in one of those 80-page giant reprints. Uh, but it was uh, – the Luthor Brainiac team. Oh, okay. That's the birdcage cover, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And just in the last couple of years, I think, well, after I started this uh, podcast, I learned that that was uh, Carrie Bates' first sale to uh, DC. Uh, I don't think he got paid anything by Martin Weisinger. I think he may have gotten the original art for that cover. Wow. Which... For me, that would have been payment enough. Yeah, especially now when there's not just a whole lot of that era of of, art, of artwork still around. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame to read stories about what happened to some of the old art that was just yeah. uh, you know tossed Sliced away. Mm-hmm. 
slice it up and toss it out the toss it out into the trash. Yeah. Yeah. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Okay, so Superman number four was it had a cover date of spring 1940, and it was released around February 15th of that year, which is only three days after the start of the Superman radio serial. So it's the first comic uh, released after that started. And as we get in, into the stories, I'll point out a few things that kind of harken back to the the radio show, and I'm not sure if they were influenced by that at all, but it kind of piqued my interest. It had 64 pages and a price of 10 cents. Our cover is by Joe Schuster, and it shows Superman, like the mighty Samson of the Bible, tearing down marble pillars while people flee in terror. Now, what do you think about this cover, Billy? Yeah, it's a neat cover. I, I like the uh, Samson pose uh, mm-hmm. is, and uh, the look of terror on the uh, guy's expression on the front. Uh, yeah, I think I would be scared too if I was uh, in the same building. Well, yeah, for the, when the roof's coming down on your head, yeah. Um, I really, really like this cover. I think it's my favorite of the title so far, other than number one. It's just a, it's just a really great cover, and Superman looks excellent on it. I did notice on his shield, it's a red S on a black field with a yellow border. And some inking issues aside, I think that's the first time we've seen that. We've seen it before on smaller images, but I think that's more of an inking issue where they just couldn't get the fine detail in. So I thought that was worth pointing out. Yeah, and the, with the black uh, background of the shield, it kind of reminds me of the old Flesher cartoons. Mm-hmm. Which are only uh, 
about a year or so away from starting when this was published. But like I said, this issue has four stories, and Billy's going to handle the first one, so I will turn it over to you. Okay, the first story, like all of these uh, early Golden Age Superman stories, were originally untitled, but when uh, they were begun being uh, collected in the various DC reprint editions, it was given the title The Challenge of Luthor or Superman versus Luthor. It was written by John uh, Jerry Siegel with art by Paul Cassidy. Um, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at dcindexes.com and the Grand Comic Book Database at comics.org. The introduction, I guess, uh, uh, has this introduction been uh, used before? This particular wording was used back in Action Comics number 22. Okay. It's uh, pretty neat, although it's not doesn't quite have the same ring of look up in the sky would uh, later. Right. But uh, getting into the story, uh, for the first time, Metropolis was hit by an earthquake, and the Daily Planet's editor, who is looking very frazzled with his tie loosened and the top buttons of his shirt undone, assigned Clark to get the firsthand eyewitness details about the quake. After slipping into a storeroom to change into Superman – the Man of Tomorrow, as he was referred to at this time, streaked towards the scene of terror. He supported teetering buildings, allowing their occupants to safely escape, then lifted a steel girder that had pinned a boy to the ground. After the earthquake subsided, Superman was cheered by thousands as he left the scene. And then back at the Daily Planet, uh, a karma-looking editor, now wearing his coat and tie, uh, complimented Clark complimented Clark on his story, especially his Superman angle. Clark then told his editor that he had received a tip uh, that the quake might have been caused by an army weapon test run wild and then left to follow up on the story. He met a Professor Martinson at his lab, and when Clark sat in a chair, the professor struck Clark on the back of the head with a large wrench. After checking Clark's vital signs and confirming that, indeed, his heart had stopped beating, Martinson pushed Clark's limp body out of the window. But according to the uh, accompanying caption, Clark had rarely had a uh, rarely used superpower of his complete control of his bodily functions, including the ability to stop his heartbeat, so Clark had played possum. Well, Clark caught the ledge of the building uh, below changed into Superman and did like Spider-Man uh, would 20 years later climbed up the building to peer through the window of Martinson's lab. He overheard Martinson speaking to a pre-World War II era television, which had the screen mounted on the inside of the lid to the uh, TV cabinet. Martinson was reporting that the meddling reporter had been disposed of. We also learned that he was an imposter who had been searching the real professor's lab for the plans uh, to his weapon. The red-haired man that the imposter was talking to was able to see Superman hanging on the outside of the building and decided to deal with him. Soon, an airplane dropped a bomb towards Superman and the building. Uh, Superman caught the bomb and threw it back to the plane, destroying it and the crew inside. And you can add... Uh, at least one more uh, to Superman's body count. Yeah. 
Superman re-entered Martinson's lab but found no sign of the imposter. But when he saw the face on the TV screen, realized that it was none other than Lex Luthor. He, after talking with Luthor, uh, he learned that uh, the arch-villain had kidnapped the real Martinson. And Luther had said that since Martinson had been uh, uncooperative, he might have better luck with the army. Well, that evening at an army base, a army guard knocked out another one and then signaled an autogyro, uh, which landed on a building. When two of Luthor's minions tried to steal Martinson's invention, Superman cracked their heads together and sent them running back to Luthor. Superman trailed the autogyro back to Luthor's hideout, but once again Luthor saw him on his magical TV set. Luthor activated a button on his console and detonated the autogyro by remote control. Superman landed and Luthor projected his image on a tree, challenging Superman. If Superman prevailed, Luthor would admit defeat, but if Luthor won... Superman would have to retire, and Superman agreed to the terms. Several planes landed near Superman, and Luthor climbed out of one of them. His first challenge was to race around the world. The two adversaries sped over continents and oceans, and Superman eventually won. And Luthor even noticed that Superman wasn't even tired. His next challenge was to rise... Uh, see who could rise the highest and then return safe, safely to Earth. Superman and one of Luthor's propeller-driven planes rose above the atmosphere, but Superman rose higher, and he was able to return safely to Earth, but the plane was stuck in outer space as the world's first astronauts. For a final test, Luthor used electronic machinery to lift a huge boulder using electricity. Not only did Superman lift the boulder, but one of Luthor's planes as well. Then Luthor hit the Man of Tomorrow with a grenade, cannonball, and poison gas to no effect. Well, then Superman proposed a test of his own to see what would crack first, Luthor's plane or his skull. Luthor declined to take up Superman on his challenge. Instead, he admitted defeat, returning the real Martinson to Superman and then flying away. Superman wondered why Luther became noble all of a sudden, but Martinson was just free to be was just glad to be free from the clutches of a madman. After Superman returned the professor to his lab, they both heard a radio report about the army's mystery weapon having been stolen. Then Superman realized that Luther's challenges were just a distraction to keep him occupied while Luther's other minions stole the weapon. Martinson thought that he had been held somewhere in Satan's Canyon, and so Superman sped there after another section of Metropolis was hit by another earthquake. Luthor saw Superman approach on his TV monitor and detonated a bomb that had been planted high in the canyon wall. While Superman swatted the boulders away with his fists, then after he fell into a grass pit, he uh, swatted away the two wolves that had been inside the uh, pit, and then climbed his way out, out of it. Then a mystery gas knocked Superman unconscious, and two of Luther's thugs dragged the Man of Tomorrow to a certain spot 
near Luthor's laboratory tower. Luthor zaps Superman with the earthquake weapon, creating a crevasse that swallowed up the Man of Tomorrow. But uh, he uh, revived and climbed himself, dug himself out, and by this point he'd had enough of playing around with Luthor. Wasting no more time, Superman demolished the tower, not worrying about how many people were inside. Uh, since Super, since Luthor is still plaguing Superman over 70 years later, I think it's safe to assume he wasn't one of the casualties. Later, Clark returned to Martins' lab to find the scientist dead on the floor by an apparent suicide. Clark reported it to his editor, who said that Martinson must have repented of inventing such a terrible weapon. Clark said that Martinson's secret died with him, never to menace civilization again. And in the last panel after the end of the story, there was an ad for the Spectre who appeared in more fun comics. Another character created by Jerry Siegel and along with artist Bernard Bailey. Yep. Right off the top of the story here, I kind of wish that Siegel would have done a little more with this earthquake. I mean, in, in the very first panel, we see um, buildings crumbling and falling down, and it's it looks like major devastation, but yet after, like, panel three of the next page, we don't really hear much more about the earthquake. And I realize they only have 13 pages and, and a lot of story to tell in those 13 pages, but still, it seems like it should be a little bigger deal when you have a major earthquake like that. Yeah, and then uh, you know uh, later on in the story, it's just mentioned in a caption again. Right. Uh, and then, you know, as you said, never dealt with again. It's almost like it's two stories kind of uh, uh, combined into one. Mm-hmm. With the earthquake and then the the stuff that, you know, the Luther's various challenges. Um, yeah. But also here in this story, we have the first appearance of the Daily Planet in the comic books. It had been previously uh, brought into the newspaper strip, but this is the first time it was in the comics in, in this issue. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I knew it happened. The change happened early on, but didn't realize that it was the. This was the very first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it. Like I said, it first appeared in the newspaper strips in mid-November of 1939, and then it was brought into the comics here. And it was also introduced in the first episode of the, or the, excuse me, the second episode of the radio serial. So now all three mediums are the same. And we also have the first time that Clark has changed to Superman in the storeroom which is going to become very iconic with the George Reeves series. So I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, it was. Um, on page two, I love the scenes of Superman helping people with the, you know, saving people from the earthquake. Kind of wish we would have seen a little more of that, but again, you know, there's only 13 pages, so. Yeah, and uh, at the end... Uh, of that scene where it says, well, he was left to the cheers of thousands, it would have been nice to have seen a crowd scene. Right. Instead of just a blank background, yeah. It just the, uh, I guess they were noise lines of the people's, I guess they were to represent the people's cheering him. Could be, yeah. But I do like that it says he, you know, he runs away to their grateful cheers. Superman, in the last uh, recent stories that I've been looking at on the show, he's really becoming more of the public's hero rather than someone that people uh, are afraid of. So I'm glad we're kind of moving more that direction with the stories. I, I wondered, though, if this guy 
the guy that's breaking into uh, Professor Martinson's lab. If that's not Professor Martinson, then I wondered why he was dressed up like a stereotypical scientist with a lab coat and all that. So Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, a bald uh, scientist to boot. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the first panel, kind of looks like he has hair. But then in the other panels, he's definitely bald. But Luthor has hair. Yes, yep. At this point, he does. At this point, yeah. Um, speaking of Luthor, though... Um, I, I normally don't do this, but I'm going to spoil ahead on a story that I'll be coming, covering in an upcoming episode. Because in the story from Action Comics number 23, which I'll be looking at next episode, that also has Lex Luthor. And that is normally considered his first appearance. And because in the story, that's the first time Superman and Luthor meet. But according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, this issue was released first. So I'm not really sure if Mike's dates are off or if they were just originally published out of order. I kind of stand by Mike's dates because no one else has gone to the work of trying to find dates, so that's really the only information we have. But it it does kind of raise a question about what was going on. In the the, uh, comics.org, they really don't have the the, uh, publication date. No, Uh, they just put the cover month and cover year and that's it. So, yeah, we have a kind of the first first appearance of Luthor, and we'll have the second first appearance next episode. Uh, but I do love that the way Superman – what he, the first thing that we see Superman say about Luthor is that he is a mad scientist who plots to dominate the Earth, which just sums up Luthor in this period perfectly to me. That pretty well is – is uh, Luthor in any era, for well, that yeah. matter. Yeah, at least until the, the mid-'80s, yeah. And, and even then, sort of, yeah. Yeah, well, he, uh, I guess in the From Crisis era, it's uh, uh, to take over the business world. Right. Page 5, you mentioned this in your summary, but Luthor's face appears on the tree. And this is one of the things that has just always stuck in my mind since the very first time I read this story. It's weird how scenes like that will just stick with you, but I'm not I'm not I'm not always real good at remembering little details and about the stories, which is good because it, I can reread them several times and it helps me to enjoy them more. But this is just one of the things, you know, Luthor's face appearing on the tree is just so bizarre. Yeah, it's it's definitely something uh, very different. Yeah. Um, pages six through nine, where Superman is going through all of Luthor's various challenges. I don't really have much to say about it, but I just I liked it. Uh, the whole premise of Luthor challenging Superman, I thought it was really fun and entertaining, and it really gives Superman a chance to show off. Plus, it's very symbolic of the brains versus brawn that will you know symbolize the Luthor versus Superman conflict throughout the years. Yeah, and I noticed how uh, some of them, Luthor doesn't uh, uh, risk his life. It's his minions, like the uh, two henchmen who flew uh, a little too high and got stuck in outer space. Right, and then Superman just leaves them there yeah. to die without oxygen. Because if they're, if they're beyond the pull of gravity, it's pretty safe to say they don't have any oxygen either. So, Yeah. Um and I loved that Luthor's endgame was more than just to annoy Superman or to you know try to get Superman to leave him alone because he should know that A, Superman wouldn't do that, and B, 
Superman is probably going to top whatever he can do anyway. But it was to keep Superman distracted while his minions did the or stole the uh, was the earthquake machine. Yeah, that was a very very clever of Luthor. Right. And I like to think that he was doing it also to test the limits of Superman's powers, though that's purely conjecture on my part. It's never really mentioned. Yeah, but it would make sense. Page eleven, we had a. It's a uh, typo that I noticed. They fixed it in the reprints. No, excuse me, page. Yeah, page ten. The guy tells him it was Satan's Canyon, but then on the next page it says Satin's Canyon, and they fixed that in the reprints. But in the original, if you look at the scans of the original, it's wrong. So that kind of made me laugh. And we have another fun sequence here on page eleven with. Superman uh, fighting the wolves and the avalanche of boulders and more. I, I like that. Plus, he gets knocked unconscious on page 12, which is which is not something we've seen too often in these stories. And we really don't learn what uh, the gas was that knocked him out either. No. Just one of Luthor's fancy scientific inventions, I guess. Luthor, Luthor has all these fancy inventions that harm Superman or... or you know, uh, hurt him, but we never really learn what they like. This ray, maybe the ray doesn't really do anything. No, the ray doesn't really do anything. That's the next story I was thinking of. Never mind. But as as Superman tears down Luthor's stronghold, he says that finishes the earthquake machine. Well, it's a good thing that Luthor didn't just bring the earthquake machine with him when he left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or or else, of uh, Luthor. Had the plans, maybe he could later uh, reverse engineer it to rebuild it from memory. Right. But uh, I thought Martinson's suicide was really convenient. There wasn't really any need for him to die at the end of the story. Yeah, and I guess unless he must have been overcome with grief from uh, the harm that was done uh, when – by, you know, Luthor uh, when he uh, stole it. But then – it doesn't really explain what how the uh, what happened when Metropolis was hit by an earthquake at the beginning of the story. Right, right. But overall, I, I really liked the parts with Luthor challenging Superman. I thought those were fun. But other than that, there's not just a whole lot to this story. Uh, I didn't think it was bad. You know, like as in full of contrived plots or, or nonsense, like like I've seen in a lot of stories, but. There just wasn't a lot of story in this because a good chunk of it was Superman going through Luthor's various challenges, and then later we had the similar thing when he was breaking into his stronghold. Yeah, I, I still enjoyed it. It was just a fun action story. Oh yeah, lots of action. Yeah, yeah, I did like um, in the plane that bombed the building. Uh, it kind of reminded me of. Uh, uh, there's another story we'll cover in uh later in the issue they they both kind of reminded me of a there was a fighter plane called a p-38 lightning which had like three fuselages and the center one was the cockpit and the outer two were the uh engines hmm. it just uh one of the was one of the more futuristic looking planes that ever flew during world war ii and just uh the plane that Schuster drew in this story kind of reminded me of that. You say that's from World War II, or did they have those around World War One as well? No, I, th- I think it was World War Two. Okay, 
I'm, I'm looking at uh, pictures on Google Images right now, and you're right, it does sort of look like that, except it doesn't have... It's a, a little bit different. Yeah, it's a little different, but similar, yeah. And I, I couldn't help but think when I was reading the, the story uh, when Luthor um, you know, was somehow able to beam his uh, his face on the tree is like – you know, he could probably take over the world bus just by selling cable TV service that just <laughs> beam it on your wall. Yeah. No no need for flat screens. Just blast the image on the wall. That That's a good idea. I mean, he yeah. should have thought of that. Yeah, and uh, Luthor, I think working for Luthor, if, if you live long enough to retire, you'd have a pretty good retirement plan because he doesn't mind risking their lives. First of all, there's Martinson's imposter – that is in the building when he dropped – Luthor has the plane drop the bomb on it. Right. And then, of course, the two henchmen whose plane got stranded uh, you know, in, in Earth orbit. Yeah, I guess uh, Superman, I've, I've noticed in listening to your, your podcast and uh, Golden Age Superman that uh, Superman doesn't waste much time and sympathy on uh, villains. No, not at all. If they're evil, he's not going to cry over them dying, you know, or or even killing them if it comes to that. Yeah. And I, I've talked before, I'm not really a fan of that in this era. I mean, I know a lot of it comes from just the times, but I'm glad yeah. we're we're slowly moving away from that. At least we yeah. will pretty soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of – yeah, it's kind of just uh, – I can understand because of the uh, the era, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of glad – it's uh, really not like the Superman that I grew up being used to. No. Um, the art, I thought, in this issue was, was okay. There's a couple places where Superman is missing his shield, but we've, we've had that in pretty much every story so far. Other than that, I didn't really have any complaints. It was pretty much what we're used to in early Golden Age Superman stories. Yeah, the the art it was uh, you know very simple like uh, you know a lot of Golden Age comic books were, but it I thought it did a good job of telling the story pretty clearly, you know except for the one panel where uh, Superman you know leaves to the cheers of thousands, but we don't see the crowd or anything right. like that. But other than that, that's just a, you know a minor quibble. You got anything else on this particular story? Oh yeah, one more thing. I was when I was reading the story. I was thinking, where does how is Luthor able to see all these things like Superman hanging on the building or following the plane? I mean, has he rigged cameras all over Metropolis? <laughs> Satellite technology, maybe. I don't. Yeah. Know. Now I can understand when uh, Superman was following following the auto gyro. That well, I can imagine Luthor had a camera on on the auto gyro. And then uh, blew it up so Superman wouldn't uh, be able to find his uh, his hideout. Um, oh, one thing I was going to point out. I don't know if, you, if you've uh, mentioned – have there been other stories with autogyro in – with an autogyro in Superman stories? I think so. I can't uh, cite any issues off okay. the top of my head, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there's been at least one. Yeah. I can't remember. Have you – Mentioned about what an auto gyro was. I didn't want to repeat. No, no, I haven't really. Yeah, um, I, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I, uh, from what I have read, it was like the direct uh, ancestor to the modern helicopter. Hmm, okay, you know, it looked like you know, like a uh, 
pre-World War II airplane, but it had a propeller mounted on top of it instead of uh, uh, you know perpendicular to the ground like a regular airplane propeller. It was horizontal to the ground, and it would uh, uh, the, you know it would be above the uh, the, the pilot, hmm. and uh, that was part of the development of the modern helicopter. Wow. I'm I'm not at all up on my aviation history, so it, it, I'm glad you you mentioned that because it kind of fills me in on you know a little more about the the history of stuff. Yeah, because um, and now you've gotten mentioned it uh, in the uh, Legends of the Batman podcast with his uh, right. auto gyro, with a precursor to his uh, bat plane. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in reading this story, it's been reprinted four times. First in Superman from the 30s to the 70s, and then in The Greatest Superman Stories Ever Told, which came out in the 1980s. We have, And then we have the normal Superman, the Action Comics Archives, volume... I have volume one of my notes, but I think it might be volume two. Anyway, it's in one of the archives, and then Superman Chronicles, volume three. Presenting Supergirl's Cosmic Adventures, a podcast dedicated to the continuing adventures of the maid of might herself, Supergirl. Episodes can be found at supergirlpodcast.blogspot.com. So our next story, it was 13 pages and... Like all the stories, it's not titled at the time, but has later been called Luthor's Undersea City. It was written by Jerry Siegel, with art by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, and the whole issue was edited by Whitney Ellsworth. Our story begins as a news flash comes into the Daily Planet that oil wells around the world have dried up. Clark Kent is assigned to cover the story, and as Superman, heads to Oklahoma. On his trip, high overhead... A missile-like projectile changes path and charges right at the Man of Steel. Superman twists and dodges, but the missile seems to follow him. Our hero then grabs hold and clings tight as the missile spins and whirls, trying to dislodge his passenger. Finally, Superman rips loose some wires connected to the radio control, causing the missile to plummet downward. As the missile and Superman fall, Luthor's face materializes on the missile's side, warning Superman to stay away from the oil well mystery or die. The missile soon crashes, and unharmed, Superman resumes his trip and arrives at the oil well, or arrives at the oil field, I'm sorry, just as an earthquake strikes the field. Superman shores up a building and then swiftly crosses the field, saving the oil derricks before leaping off. Meanwhile, Lois Lane arrives at the Oklahoma City airport, but is disappointed to learn that she just missed Superman's heroics. Later, Lois meets up with Clark and accompanies him to the Oklahoma Bulletin newspaper. There, they hear a news flash that the entire Pacific coast has been swamped with two feet of water and that the ocean is still rising. Clark grabs Lois, set on making a trip even farther west, but as they leave the newspaper, two goons force them into a waiting car. The goons drive along a winding mountain road, informing Clark and Lois that they are being brought to Luthor, who is upset that they are interfering in his plans once more. Clark uses a Vulcan nerve pinch to render Lois unconscious, 
and then rips the wheel from the steering column. The driver tries to reach for the emergency brake, but finds that Clark has beaten him to the punch and has crushed it with his bare hands. One of the kidnappers tries to shoot him, but Clark responds by knocking both goons' skulls together, then grabbing Lois and leaping free of the car, mere seconds before it speeds off the cliff. Clark takes Lois to the airfield, and as she revives, says the kidnappers let them go with only a warning to stop their investigation. They speak to a pilot who agrees to fly them out west and are soon on their way. As they fly over the drowned area, Clark, with his supervision, sees something out in the ocean. A city encased in a glass dome rising from the water. Suddenly, the glass dome folds back and out flies a giant pterodactyl. The beast attacks the plane, crushing it with its mighty talons, killing the pilot and leaving Lois unconscious. Clark grabs Lois and leaps from the plane, but is snared by the pterodactyl. With Lois still in hand, Clark fights the mighty creature, finally besting it and soon landing safely back on the ground. Not knowing what to expect, Clark transforms into Superman and then sees that Lois has revived, but is still in a state of shock. He starts to draw some water from a nearby stream. However, Superman returns to find Lois being menaced by a giant rat. Leaping into action, Superman grabs the beast, swinging it around and tossing it to his death in the ocean. Superman then turns and is shocked to find Lois gone. Seeing a weird plane nearby, Superman assumes that she must be a prisoner on the plane and gives chase. Nearing the city, the voice of Luthor booms from the sky. Superman! Offer no resistance or Miss Lane will be destroyed. Ceding to Luthor's demands, Superman stands by as Lois deboards the plane, and Luthor orders his men to take her to the Green Laboratory. Luthor explains to Superman how the city was created, which is what caused the oil wells to dry up and the coast to flood. He then goes on to show him his laboratory where he created the pterodactyl, the giant rat, and other monstrosities that he plans on unleashing on the world in his quest for domination. He then tells Superman if he were to join him, he might be inclined to be more merciful. As Superman ponders the mad criminal's offer, his superhearing alerts him to elsewhere in the building where Luthor's men are trying to force Lois into a deadly vat of chemicals. Superman busts through the wall, making, a, making quick work of the goons. When back on shore, members of the military spot Luthor City and make plans to bomb the city with gas. Back in the city, Superman and Lois are brought before Luthor, who tells Superman that if he can defeat another one of his creatures, he will let them go. Superman squares off against the T-Rex, easily defeating it by grabbing its tail and slamming it to the ground. Just as Luthor orders his men to gun Superman and Lois anyway, American planes swoop in, dropping gas bombs throughout the city. Luthor runs to his laboratory and starts to submerge the city. Superman goes after Luthor, but the mad criminal unleashes his monsters, and the Man of Steel leaps away, Lois in his arms, the beasts turn on Luthor. Superman smashes his way through the glass dome, causing Luthor's city to flood, destroying it, and makes his way back to shore. Switching back to Clark, he takes Lois to the doctor, where she quickly recovers, but doesn't re remember anything after the pterodactyl attacked the plane. Clark writes up the story and is congratulated by his boss, to which Clark replies that he bets even Superman couldn't have done better. Our splash page shows Superman racing in to save a little girl, who is... Uh, about to run in front of a speeding car. And I like the splash, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the story, uh, as we've seen a lot in the comics.
And our introduction text was used back in Action Comics number 22. So we, we've been seeing more and more that they're repeating those introductory paragraphs. Uh, but they've all kind of been similar anyway. So I, I like this panel here. Uh, let's see, it's the second panel of the story with Superman running across country because it kind of reminded me of uh, Smallville when he yeah. ran to the metropolis. Did you watch much of Smallville, Billy? Um, no. Um, I think when Smallville started, if I remember the some of the advertising for it, it was uh, – I could be mistaken, but it seemed like it was uh, advertised compared to – it was like it was the uh, super – Superman for or Clark Kent for the uh, 90210 uh, crowd, yeah. which was after my time. So at first, it really didn't appeal to me. Although I have uh, watched parts of it, like uh, I don't remember the season it was, but it happened to come on uh, upon a rerun when Clark was uh, stuck in the uh, Phantom Zone. Okay. And then I watched it for a, a little bit after that. Then uh, uh, I think it, I got away from it. But I did see – I didn't see the ending, but I did see uh, Legion and um, the – I forget the name of it, but the one with the Justice Society. Okay, right. And those were t- two fantastic episodes. Um, it did a real good job of kind of adapting both to TV because uh, I was especially look forward to the Legion episode because after Superman, uh, as far as DC characters, you know, while Batman's up there, Legion's my second favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was gonna say the show might appeal to you more just picking out certain episodes like the Legion episode or the JSA episode because uh, you know you and I are both older and we don't really get into the, all the the teen drama stuff which. I think that's part of why I didn't really enjoy the show as much as I did, say, Lois and Clark or the George Reeves show, because it's just it, – it really wasn't targeted at folks that are our age, you know. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, uh, getting back to this story, on page two, we have Luthor making his face appear again on the side of the, the missile. And I just love that this is the thing he does in all the stories. Uh, not to spoil ahead again, but he does it in the uh, story from Action Comics 23, too. So that's three Luthor stories in a row where he's made his face appear on something. It's like, yeah. well, that's that's his shtick, I guess. Yeah, he just likes to see his face everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, on page three, uh, uh, when Superman was saving the one tower and the one guy was uh, gawking, and Superman was pretty sarcastic. And he said, you'd be more help if you did something besides look. Yeah, and what's he supposed to do when there's an earthquake and buildings and oil derricks are toppling over, you know? It's not like there's people in danger, because we see a total of two people here at the oil field, so... Well, that's something even I've, I've noticed in Silver Age stories, uh, that uh, in some subtle ways, you know, the Superman characters can not be very nice sometimes. Right. Um, Page... Yeah, on that same page, I thought it was kind of odd that they would send Lois separately to cover the story, and that she and Clark wouldn't go together. It's it's just a minor nitpick, not a major issue, because obviously Siegel needed Superman to encounter Luther on the way there, so he couldn't have them fly out together. 
but still it kind of stuck out to me and I think once they get into the silver age they'll they'll handle that kind of situation better but I would I would advise Lois to get used to quote unquote just missing Superman because that's going to happen a lot in the radio show she's always getting knocked out there and coming to just after Superman leaves on page 4 I liked seeing them go through the non-metropolis newspaper and I think I liked seeing that just because I like seeing more of the the world that they live in even if it's a a fake newspaper or fictional newspaper like the Oklahoma City Bulletin it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me right up front because you know if they're covering something for their paper why would they go to another newspaper but for the newspaper I work at you know we get calls sometimes from larger papers if they're looking for information on a local story so once I thought it through a little more, it, it made a little more sense. And plus, you never know. Um, I know like in the Silver Age, uh, there will be a story where we find out that the Daily uh, Planet is owned by the same company that owns another newspaper. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Right. They could all be owned by the same company. One thing I noticed on page four, you know, both Clark and Lois are uh, in uh, – that by the uh, oil fields, but when they find out about the disaster in the Pacific Coast, you know why? I didn't understand why Clark demanded that Lois follow him to the Pacific Coast when one could cover the the oil well story and the other could go to the Pacific Coast and follow that one. But <laughs> yeah. then I guess we wouldn't have had uh, Lois in peril through the whole story if right. uh, otherwise. Right. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. They they could have split up, but especially since they didn't get to Oklahoma City together, you know. And then once they all get shoved into the goon's car, where they're all oddly sitting in the front seat, I might point out. But this is another discrepancy with the uh, issue publication order, because, you know, Luthor, Luthor and Lois haven't interacted yet. But Luthor is upset that Lois and Clark are interfering in their plans again, but then... If you look at Action Comics number 23, that's where Luther, Lois had her interaction with Luthor. So it's just kind of a, a weird weird thing reading these out of order. Yeah. When the uh, – I liked uh, Clark's sense of humor in the Golden Age. Uh, when the crooks – I think – I believe it's on page five when the crook uh, shoots Clark in the face and is shocked to see the bullets bounce off. And Clark says, well, my teachers always did, always did tell me I was thick skulled. Now let's see how thick your skulls are when he, uh, you know, clocks both their heads together. Yeah. Yeah, he – Siegel wrote Superman and Clark sometimes with a bit of humor. Um, it was never campy or slapstick, but he would just come off with this kind of sarcastic and, and wisecracking humor that, that I really like in the character. Yeah, there. kind of uh, – uh, after reading um, uh, Men of Tomorrow by uh, Gerard Jones, uh, it, I guess he carried that over from when he was in high school writing Goober the Mighty, which was a Tarzan spoof. I, I guess they carried that that his style of humor from that into uh, Superman. I, I've never seen any of those Goober the Mighty strips. I don't know if they still exist or you know if they're. Uh, um, yeah, I've never really seen them. I just uh, – uh, in the book when he was uh, – Gerard Jones was writing about them, uh, Siegel and Schuster in high school. I guess it was a feature in their um, 
the, new, the, the high newspaper, school newspaper. Right. And uh-huh. I guess uh, when uh, the car plunged off the cliff, you know, a Clark leaped off carrying Lois and then left the two thugs to uh, go all Thelma and Louise on us. Yeah. I like the scene, you know, with uh, Clark knocking Lois out and then taking care of the thugs and leaping out of the car very heroically. But the the fact that he leaves the two guys in there to die, that's like we talked about earlier. It's just, you know, he's leaving, killing more people. So, yeah. Although, uh, I guess now we know uh, where the planet Vulcan got the neck pinch from. Yeah, yeah. We've seen Superman do this three times now where he, like, pinches a nerve in somebody's neck and knocks him out. And the f- I, was, oh, I was getting ready to say I thought the first time he did it was Lois too, but no, the, this is the first time he's done it to Lois. But anyway, page six, we have Clark Kent bald-faced bold lying to, to Lois where he, when he says... Those thugs released us with a warning to abandon our investigation. Well, no, they didn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I hope uh, she never finds out what happens to him or that, you know, as inquisitive as Lois is, uh, you know, that would uh, get her kind of uh, on a trail for her to figure out what really happened. Yeah. Also, when Clark rented the plane, he was able to afford $1,000, which I like to know where he gets the money from. I yeah. mean, is he moonlighting on something other than beyond being Superman and uh, a reporter for the Daily Planet? I don't know. He's always in these stories throwing around this, these you know, big stacks of money, and I have no idea where he gets it from. Uh, I was going to say he had all the oil well money, but he gave that to the orphanage. Uh, or the uh, the boys' home, whatever it was, a few stories ago. So, hmm. well, maybe yeah. maybe there um, he did something that they really don't get into until the Silver Age, where he would just uh, fly into the ocean and dig up buried treasure. <laughs> yeah, it could be. And at the bottom of this page, we have yet another glass-domed city, the final ultra-humanite story, which. I'm not sure if you've if that issue's been or if that episode's been released or not when we were recording this. I don't think it's I don't think it's been released. But um in the final Ultra Humanite story, uh the Ultra Humanite also had a glass domed city. But that one was in a volcano where this one's in the middle of the ocean. So we have Siegel kind of repeating some of the concepts and I wondered if that wasn't something he maybe picked up from a sci fi or pulp story that he had read somewhere. You know, a yeah. giant domed city. Yeah, that would be uh, very uh, conceivable. They would do that. It would se- seem like something from, you know, 1930s or 40 era science fiction story. Mm-hmm. Page seven, we have Lois getting knocked unconscious yet again for the second time in this story when the, the plane gets attacked by the pterodactyl. I would think, you know, maybe uh, she ought to be checked for a concussion after this. <laughs> yeah. And here on and on page eight, I really like uh, the idea in this era with the lower-powered Superman. Well, kind of that he's fighting these these mutated animals and the giant beasts. We've seen him take on lions and bears and sharks, and, and now he's fighting a pterodactyl, and that's just really kind of cool to me. Yeah. Um, it, well, I guess it's not until page nine. The giant mouse or giant rat. Oh, uh huh. Although I have to say it might be big and menacing and I, I would probably think so you know if I was facing uh, an animal that big but 
I couldn't help but think it was look kind of uh, more comical. Yeah. The way it was drawn, it was kind of comical, yeah. Page 10, Luthor looks significantly different this issue than he did, or I'm sorry, this story, than he did in the first story we covered. He's uh, quite a bit skinnier, his hair is messier, and his facial features are much more cartoonish, which, and the, the differences in the looks probably stem from having the different artists. Uh, Joe Schuster penciled this story where the last one was Paul Cassidy, uh, and we had the same problem with the Ultra Humanite. Each story, he looked just a little bit different than the previous story. So while they're they're keeping Clark and Lois pretty much uh, constant or con- consistent in their looks, but the villains that repeat, they they don't really take a great deal of care with them. I really like the scene of Superman and Luthor just walking and talking, almost casually so, through the city. Um, I'm not really sure why, but it maybe have some, have something to do with what I know is coming between these two characters. You also kind of get the feeling that Superman is just kind of biding his time a bit, waiting for Luthor to say the wrong thing or to fully reveal his plan, though later in the story that doesn't necessarily seem the case. But when uh, when Luthor asks Superman to join him, I really wanted Superman just to say no and then give us a big action hero panel of uh, Superman punching Luthor in the jaw, but... It seemed like he was actually considering it there for a minute until he found yeah. out Lois was in trouble, which is weird. Yeah, I guess that changed everything. Yeah, uh, you can add one more victim to Superman's body count. Uh, we find out what uh, that uh, green vat of green chemicals was for when he dumped one of the henchmen in there, and that was that was the end of him. Right. And the uh, dinosaurs. Uh, uh, I kind of like these scenes, but I have to admit that the dinosaurs uh, and the giant creatures were kind of uh, kind of crudely drawn, even though it was you know a fun action scene. Yeah, yeah, animals weren't really uh, Joe Schuster's strong suit, unfortunately. Yeah, he he was better with the people and the the facial expressions. In page twelve, we also have the end of Luthor, maybe, as he is mauled to death by animals. Yeah, unless uh, the dinosaur picked him up and swallowed him whole for an hors d'oeuvre. Yeah. And uh, then maybe Luthor made it through to the other side. Uh, on the final page of the story, I like the panel with Superman swimming through the water with Lois on his back. It's, it's a very heroic-looking panel, I thought. But um, overall for this story, I, I really appreciated... Why don't you go first? Why don't you give your overall thoughts? Um, yeah, it's not that... You know, lucky for Clark that Lois was pretty much out of it for most of the story, or but at the end of it, she would have figured out his uh, secret identity. Right, because he when they're on the island there, he just changes to to Superman, and if she had, you know, come to her senses, she might have wondered what happened to Clark and why Superman was suddenly there. So that was kind of weird. Uh, but overall, I, I I appreciate what Jerry Siegel was going for here, but it. <laughs> I don't know, it's just not quite working. Like with the Ultra Humanite, Siegel's trying to do bigger villains, but it's just not really all gelling together. Um, this story seemed like... This particular story seemed like more of a space issue, though, and maybe there just wasn't enough space for the story he wanted to tell, because it really felt that he was just burning through the whole thing, the whole the whole story. 
There were quite a few moments in the story that I liked, though, with Superman fighting the giant beasts and the talk with, with Luthor, but it just feels like the whole thing could have been fleshed out more, you know, if had he used it in the uh, newspaper serials or something where he had more space. Yeah, there were a few um, stories, uh, you know, from these early Superman issues where it does the plot does seem kind of rushed um you know like maybe there was a i'm just guessing but you know like as if there were some you know deadline approaching and they needed to get you know put a plot together for the jerry siegel i mean joe schuster to draw or the Mm -hmm. other artists but uh you know i guess it's just uh um jerry kind of you know, finding his way as he develops him and Joe develop Superman. Right, and at this point in time, they were writing a lot of stuff too. I mean, Superman alone—they had uh, the four stories for Superman, one for Action, plus the daily and Sunday strips. And then Jerry Siegel was also writing Slam Bradley and Radio Squad, and uh, what was the other one? Oh, was it um... Bart Regan Spy? Yeah. Yeah. Plus Red, White, and Blue, and the Spectre. Yeah. So he was just, you know, that's a lot of stories, and I, I think sometimes reading through these, like I have been, I think sometimes it was just too much for him to to get it all done, and then he had to kind of rush a little bit. But, but two part of that is just the time and or the, the era, you know, and they they just didn't put as much detail into the stories like we get now. Yeah. Plus, I, I think too, you know, this is a still. Early in, you know, uh, the comic book industry, so everyone was kind of learning as they were going. Right. It, and if it's interesting too, Superman has been around for a little more than a year and a half at this point, and it's interesting to see how much his stories have changed since the beginning. You know, in those earliest stories, he was taking on a wife beater and war profiteers, and here he's fighting pterodactyls and giant mutant rats and and uh, wolves, and it's just big you know scientific villains and it's just amazing how much in a year and a half it's all changed yeah and uh i guess as things go along you can kind of tell jerry and joe's love for science fiction is starting to kind of make their way into the superman stories right but all my nitpicks aside and i i guess i did have a uh quite a few nitpicks for this story i i think i liked this story just a little bit more than the first one yeah it was uh from beginning to end, it was kind of all kind of wove together a little more. It was just uh, instead of like the the first story had the earthquake you know, Mar- with Martinson. It was a kind of book ended, and then at the whole middle of the story was uh, you know Superman meeting Luthor's challenge. Right at the end of the story, we have an ad for the Sandman, who appears in every issue of Adventure Comics. Yeah, now I haven't read any of the original Sandman stories yet, but I have seen pictures of the Siegel, I mean, uh, uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's um, their kind of uh, revamped version of the Sandman, where he put him in spandex and gave given a um, sidekick. Oh. But I have to admit, I like the original version. It kind of looked more like um, uh, the Shadow or the Spirit. Mm-hmm. But just seeing him with the gas mask and the uh, short cape and the gas gun, I kind of like the original version. It had more uh, 
it kind of stood out more than the superhero uh, tights version of of the Sandman. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I'm a I'm a superhero guy. I love my my cape and and tights wearing superheroes, Superman, and Batman, and and all that. But with the Sandman, it it that costume just really stands out in this era. And um, it was actually Paul Norris, I think, that was the artist when when he switched over to the uh, when the Sandman switched over to the the purple and yellow costume, and then Simon and Kirby took over a few issues later. Oh, but, okay. But yeah, but I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, um, I have read all those Simon and Kirby stories and a few of the ones that came before that. But but yeah, I definitely do like the gas mask and fedora outfit for the Sandman. If you're interested in reading this story with Superman and Luthor and the the giant mutant werebeasts, it's only been reprinted twice. First in Superman, the Action Comics Archives, Volume 1, and then in Superman Chronicles, Volume 3. Hey, everybody. My name is Michael Bailey, and this is the trailer with a truly epic ending to my new show about Batman, appropriately titled Bailey's Batman Podcast. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a weekly program that looks at a month in the life of the Dark Knight Detective, starting with the books bearing a March 1983 cover date, which is where my solid run of the characters' comics begins, and moving forward until... Well, at least until the books that came out in 2005, because that's where the solid run ends. Each week, I will give you a full synopsis and review of every major ongoing Batman title, with brief stops along the way to look at the important specials, miniseries, one-shots, and Elseworlds stories just to keep things interesting. I'll also be telling you what other books Batman appeared in that month, as well as what was going on elsewhere in the DCU. It is going to be all Batman all the time as I look at over 20 years of the character's history. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the epic ending to this trailer. You ready? The first appearance of Jason Todd. Death in the Family. Nightfall. Epic. No Man's Land. Do you have chills yet? All of that and more will be covered on Bailey's Batman Podcast every Tuesday at baileysbatmanpodcast.com Alright, so we're now up to the third story and Billy's going to handle this one as well so I'm turning it back over to Billy. Oh, the third story uh, of the issue was 13 pages long. Uh, like all rest of these Golden Age stories, was originally untitled, but uh, uh, when it was uh, began being reprinted for the reprinted for the sake of the reprint editions, it was given the title "The Economic Enemy." It was written by Jerry Siegel, penciled by Joe Schuster, and inked by Paul Cassidy. And it began with the editor assigning Clark. To interview Paul Dorgan, the author of a manuscript which was going to be titled Prosperity's Foe. At Dorgan's apartment, Clark asked to see his manuscript, but Dorgan politely declined because he said that he couldn't trust anyone with the manuscript. 
and he asked Clark to just just simply write that his document would prove that people or forces were attempting to block America's return to prosperity. And I guess today Dorgan would be called a conspiracy theorist, maybe. As soon as Clark left Dorgan's apartment, he heard a gunshot uh, from inside, and when he re-entered, he saw Dorgan on the floor, an apparent suicide victim. In Dorgan's hand was a note, which read, One power-mad individual is behind this threat to the nation, and his name is... And that's where the note ends. Clark called the police and was released after they investigated uh, uh, Dorgan's suicide and questioned Clark. When he, Clark returned to the Daily Planet offices, uh, the all the employees were uh, v- very harried and uh, excited because they were they were receiving news reports from around the nation. About economic chaos, a wave of strikes had hit major industries. Ships were sinking at sea, and airplanes were cracking up. I assume it mean it wasn't made clear if they were in the air or on the ground. And Clark began to wonder if Dorgan might be telling the truth after all. And after once again changing into Superman in an empty storeroom, he flew back to Dorgan's apartment. But very soon after he arrived, Superman heard someone else entering the apartment, and so he hid. And a burglar started searching the apartment, and Superman made his appearance, grabbed the burglar, and began squeezing him for information. At first, the criminal claimed to be just a plain burglar searching for a few bucks. Meanwhile, the action was being watched by another gangster from a nearby building, and he he was uh, watching through a pair of binoculars, and on uh, the or- and he and his fellow henchmen who were uh, watching uh, Dorgan's apartment went to a phone booth, and after talking to someone on the other end of the line, they called the police to Dorgan's apartment. Police officers arrived as Superman was roughing up the burglar just before the thief was about to reveal who he was really working for. And behind uh, Superman and the thug was an overturned table, and Superman had been throwing things against the wall near the burglar's head, uh, knocking holes in the wall. Well, Superman left the burglar to the police and exited through the wall like any cool superhero would do. As the police left the apartment building uh, as they took the burglar into custody, The two gangsters who had been watching from across the street shot the burglar and fled in their car. Superman followed the two thugs from above, and when they saw him, the driver hit the gas. On a mountain road, Superman stopped the two thugs, ripping up the road ahead and behind the car so that they were stranded. After they got out of the car, Superman pushed the car off the side of the mountain and super and then uh, he threatened to make them follow the car off the edge of the cliff if they didn't tell him what he wanted to know. They confessed to being members of the Barney Calhoun gang, and then Superman just simply left them there uh, as he went to meet their boss. The thugs attempted to escape and warn Calhoun, but one of the gangsters fell off of the cliff. But his partner was able to find a telephone nearby and warn his boss. Superman reached Calhoun's office only to find it empty. He found a dictaphone and listened to someone order the destruction of the Cargill auto plant. Then the phone rang, 
and a voice warned Superman to stop his investigation. And, of course, Superman responded, not till you've received the punishment you deserve. Well, suddenly there's an explosion. It's not clear if it's only in the office or if it destroyed the entire building. But Superman kept his sense of humor through it all, saying, I guess someone doesn't like me at all. Superman raced to the cargo auto plant and caught a gangster planting a bomb in the factory. Tying him up to a column near the bomb made the criminal very cooperative. He begged for his life because every car factory in town was going to be blown up in 10 minutes. And he informed Superman that the detonator would be located under the Western Boulevard Bridge. Superman left him tied up while he took care of the detonator. Once again, he caught a hood red-handed as he caught another uh, criminal setting the detonator. Superman had somehow found a large boulder and threw it at the detonator, crushing it, but not the criminal. Superman did bounce him off a tree once, which was enough to make him tell the Man of Tomorrow that the streamlined limited train was about to be derailed. But instead of leaving this gangster behind, Superman carried him to the rail line where they found that a section of rail had been removed. Superman did leave the gangster by the tracks and uh, raced to the back of the train and grabbed the caboose and barely managed to stop the train before it got to the section of missing track. The gangster took advantage of the opportunity with Superman having his hands full to escape and call Calhoun and inform him about Superman's interference. Superman's superhearing allowed him to overhear the conversation and learned that the next disaster would occur at the Langley Steel Mill. Superman caught up to the thug that had uh, made the call, and he informed Superman that Calhoun was hiding at Baron Manor. Once again, Superman used the Vulcan neck pinch to ensure that the gangster wouldn't cause any more trouble, and the race finally to meet Calhoun, and Superman mentioned, This is turning out to be a busy night. At the Langley factory, the thug who had escaped from the mountain had sabotaged the equipment. One of the giant dippers filled with uh, molten metal, well, its supports had been weakened, and it spilled some of the uh, molten uh, metal. But Superman arrived in time to shield the workers and catch the falling dipper. Then he chased after the thug, who he recognized from the mountain road. But the gangster got a taste of poetic justice when he fell off a platform into a vat of another vat of molten metal. Uh, that made two criminals that died in the story and directly connected to S Superman. Finally, Superman was able to avoid any more interruptions and meet Calhoun, who gave Superman a drink. Calhoun got a surprise when Superman didn't die from the poison his drink was spiked with. When Superman leaned on him, Calhoun wished he had taken the poison instead and confessed that he was working with J.F. Curtis who was being paid by a foreign power to create chaos in the American economy. In his office, uh, Curtis was about to cause a panic in the stock market as a final straw. Once again, Superman took uh, Calhoun with him and uh, made it to Curtis's office before he made his phone call to a broker, I assume. Well, Curtis grabbed the lever, and then Calhoun got zapped dead uh, by electrocution. Then Curtis threatened Superman with the same fate, and Superman told him to go for it. Curtis was in for a different 
uh, kind of shock when Superman was unharmed by the voltage coursing through him. But when Superman had had enough, he touched Curtis on purpose, frying him instantly. And this was the first death in the story that Superman was directly responsible for. A week later, the editor complimented Clark about his Curtis expose and asked about his sources. Clark kept them secret and only mentioned that America would become prosperous again. After the story's final panel, there was an ad for uh, Batman in the pages of Detective Comics. Our splash panel in this story shows Superman leaping over an ocean liner. Again, we're we're not told why, or and it has nothing to do with the story. So it's random, very random. And our introductory text is uh, similar to what we've seen uh, before. Very similar, actually, to the very first story in this issue. Just a slight tweak in the wording. Um, but as we get into the story, and and I, I sometimes feel like I'm being a little hard on these Golden Age stories because I realize the storytelling quite, wasn't quite what it was or quite what it is today. But right here at the beginning, I have a problem because I don't understand how... Dorgan's killer was able to get into the apartment, struggle with Dorgan, presumably, kill him, steal the manuscript, and get back out just in the time it took Clark to walk outside. Yeah, that's uh, uh, never made clear, and we never learned who the killer was. Right. Well, we presume it was somebody working for, was it Calhoun? Yeah, probably Calhoun and uh, ultimately Curtis. Right. Somebody working for him, but yeah, you're right. We never find out specifically who it was. On page two, you got to feel sorry for Metropolis and the country at large because just in this issue, they've had two major earthquakes. Uh, all the oil wells quit working, and the entire West Coast was flooded. And now we've got planes crashing, ships sinking, and businesses going under. <laughs> so it's just one major disaster after another. And we also have Clark changing again in the storeroom, which I thought was kind of neat. This is over actually on page three, but you can kind of see it there on page two as well. The S on Superman's cape looks a little bit different than what we've seen it. Um, instead of the inverted triangle, it looks more like an inverted bell shape, and the S is very much squashed against the top of the of the shape. So that's interesting. We're going to start seeing in in upcoming comic stories, Superman's costume is going to start changing quite a bit, or at least the the S is. So I think this is the first sign of that here. Yeah, these early stories, they really weren't consistent with the S. It was almost uh, – you notice that they show it a little more than the earliest stories, but Mm -hmm. it's not still not quite – really clearly defined yet right and we've kind of marveled on that over on legends of the batman as well when we were doing that show uh you you know how they just didn't really consider the symbol to be on on either superman or batman how that wasn't a big deal where today it's very much the first thing you see when you look at the character you know yeah but back then it was just you know it's just a little symbol on his chest and not a big deal if it was left off or or colored wrong, so it's just just amazing to me looking at from looking at it as a modern reader. Yeah. On page four, I mentioned this earlier in the episode. We have the two thugs being chased by Superman, 
and one of them says, look, a man in the sky, which isn't quite look up in the sky, but that's very close. And I point that out because look up in the sky was first used on the radio show. Well, actually it was up or up in the sky look, but still the same thing. And being that this came out so close to the radio show, I can't help but wonder if that was an influence. I mean, it's just kind of a throwaway line, but still. I really liked Superman tearing up the chunks of road and straining this car in the middle. Um, Go go, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, on the next page, though, we see the car on its side, so I'm not really sure how it got there. But then he just leaps off and leaves the two guys stranded there, and one of them tries to climb down and falls and kills himself, which reminded me of the stolen costume from George Reeves' Adventures of Superman. Yeah, I, I thought of the same thing when I read that scene. And it's funny how Superman had no qualms about uh, any pr- any property damage in the uh, fight against crime. Right, definitely. Speaking of collateral damage, page 7, we have um, Superman learning that all these factories are set to explode and he just leaps off and leaves this guy in the factory that's going to blow up he doesn't disarm the bomb he doesn't untie the guy he just leaves him there and leaps off to stop other explosions well I was uh, thinking maybe this bomb was tied to the detonator that he went on to uh, destroy I think it was under, under the bridge was it Oh, that could be. One one detonator for well that's kinda weird though. One detonator for all the bombs in the city. That's Yeah. But yeah, Unless, that could be now that I'm looking at it again and that you point that out, I bet you're right. Uh, uh yeah, that would be a lot of uh detonator wire unless it was a remote a remote controlled detonator. Okay. Okay, good point. Uh, I'm who glad knows? you when you were doing your synopsis though, I'm glad you pointed out that Superman just pulls this giant boulder out of nowhere. Yeah, I was like, where does he get it from? Right. This is suddenly Superman throws a boulder at the uh, at the uh, detonator. Uh, the only thing I could think of, you know, obviously uh, it, there was uh, – he couldn't uh, hide it in his cape or on his utility belt. Yeah. The only thing I could think of, maybe there's a landscaping business in Metropolis that has large rocks uh, in the uh, on its lot. So maybe that's where Superman picked it up from. Could be, or it could have been. I mean, he's he's landing near the the bridge where the train trestle is, and sometimes they have the the big rocks down there at the base of those. But the art really doesn't show that here, so it's hard to say. Yeah, because it seems like Superman's still flying up in the air. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't say. Well, Superman swoops down, picks up a large rock, and then smashes the. <laughs> Older, this is yeah. You're you're right about that too. It, it's just very bizarre. Yeah. But on speaking of the train, though, um, not again, not to spoil too much about upcoming stories, but here we have Crooks plotting to derail a train called the Limited, and the same thing happens on the earliest episodes of the radio serial. So I thought that was interesting, and I don't know if all these similarities that are happening with the radio show just as it debuted. I don't know if they're coincidence or if Siegel was uh, had had access to the plots that they were doing 
and was lifting things or if the radio writers had access to what Siegel was doing and was pulling stuff from there. But it's just kind of interesting that they're kind of doing the same things. Have you heard very much of the radio show? Um, a little. I haven't had a chance. Uh, of, I'm downloading them from uh, one uh, podcast website, you know, on I through iTunes. Okay. But I haven't had a chance to uh, really listen to them. I have listened to like the earliest ones, but that's about it so far. I really like the earliest episodes more. I, I may be kind of in a minority here, but I like the earliest ones. I think more than the later ones. But at the same time, I've heard the earlier ones a lot more than I've heard the later ones because I have a – well, it's on cassette, so I don't listen to it much anymore. But the first uh, like 25 episodes or so I have on cassette, one of the uh, – it was a Smithsonian uh, Radio Spirits collection that they put out in the 90s. But anyway, we'll be covering the radio show on the show here pretty soon too, so on page 9, Superman tries to flag down the conductor – and the conductor just waves, thinking he's just being friendly. And I thought that was funny because it's it's doubtful the train would have been able to stop on its own anyway. But I think we've all been in the position where we're trying to flag somebody down and they just think you're waving. You know, so that's kind of something we can all all relate to. Yeah. But then Superman proves that he truly is more powerful than a locomotive by single-handedly stopping the train. Yeah, but I, I couldn't help but think that... You know, if the engine is going at full speed, that just grabbing it, the locomotive that Superman would be able to slow it down without at least some of the cars uh, breaking away uh, from the locomotive. Right. Or the lo- well, locomotive yeah. breaking away from some of the cars. But it, it was was a, a pretty cool uh, scene to see Superman barely stop the train. Yeah. Yeah, scenes like that are always cool, even if the physics don't quite mesh um we had a a scene in a uh i'm trying to think what it was i think it was the the first sunday storyline i looked at which that episode hasn't been released as we're recording this either but he uh stopped the car from going off a cliff and he like grabbed it with one hand and flung it back onto the road and it was a cool scene, but the physics of it were just – I mean there's no way that it would have worked in real life even if you had superpowers. But it was still a, kind of a cool scene. Yeah. On page 11, the the fella here – he's lifting up the giant dipper and the guy tells him, but it's impossible. And Superman says, come to think of it, it is, which reminded me of the thanks for letting me know bit from back in Action <laughs> Comics number two. And like we talked about, I, I'd love that. Uh, I love when Superman's written with a sense of humor. Yeah, kind of a little bit of self-deprecating humor. Yeah, and I think I think you kind of need that, especially in this era when people throwing cars around were. Uh, it was a very new thing, you know, because no other characters in this era really had this kind of power. I mean, now it's, you know every other superhero but yeah but back then i think you needed that kind of little bit of humor just to kind of ground the stories a little bit or people probably wouldn't have been quite as interested it would just it would have just been too much for them i think but on page 12 we have more of superman just casually chatting with the villains which is weird the luther one i kind of liked due to the future history of those two characters but here it's just very odd um and on and we have a that same villain again tries to get oh no I guess it's a different 
yeah, it's Curtis. Yeah, I'm sorry. Curtis tries to get Superman to join forces with him, and Superman again shoots him down. But we do have Superman being unharmed by a major jolt of electricity, which in a previous story he was taken out by electricity. So it's, you know, we're seeing Superman become more and more powerful as we go through more stories. But overall, what do you think about this one? Yeah, I I enjoyed it. It it seemed unlikely that a large organization could operate in secret to disrupt the economy without attracting the attention of the government or, you know, yeah. authorities. But it was an action-packed story. You got Superman working his way from crisis to crisis from the uh, all the minions up to the top of the uh uh, chain of command, so to speak. And the only criticism I have is that it would seem unlikely that uh, Curtis's, <clears throat> excuse me, Curtis's death uh, would have uh, caused the whole organization to <clears throat> fall apart. You know, it seemed more likely that someone would have taken his place. You know, like the saying goes, one falls to take his place. Right. But that's a different uh, comic book company. Uh, you know the art. You know it's simple, but it did tell us tell the story well. The only uh, panel that gave me well, two panels that gave me a problem was when Superman first goes to Calhoun's office, and after the phone call, uh, there's an explosion in the office. But was the only uh, the office damaged or the whole building? And Superman would, may have been thrown clear of the structure. It's not clear but that's just a minor quibble um you know when i was reading the story i couldn't help but uh think about you know i never expected to read a golden age superman story done right at the end of the great depression um uh, when the our country and you know the world is going to uh, one of the worst economic crises we've had since then um and we've seen, you know, without getting on either side of the political fence, we've seen how, you know, political and business decisions have affected our economy, both for good and bad. But like, like you were saying, I like his uh, Superman sense of humor um, in the Golden Age. He's got it gives him kind of a bravado that's different from the modern Superman, although right. his more ruthless part of his personality, you know. Um, it, it's kind of jarring in a way when I'm used to reading the you know more uh, laid back, uh, more concerned about uh, pe- even the criminal safety yeah. of the Silver Age Superman and, and beyond. Like when uh, I, I like his uh, sense of humor when he rips up the road. He says, uh, tells the two guys on the mountain road, continue at your own risk. Yeah, and. Uh, and then when he breaks uh, breaks up the road behind him, he says, uh, "Stick around." Um, but uh, yeah, this was a, a, a this was this was a pretty action packed story. Um, it was a uh, it was quite a, a lot of fun. Uh, he, I think he is a couple of the criminals kind of came off easier than uh, others we've seen. When uh, Superman's had to deal with them, yeah. Of course, I guess, I guess we hope uh, Superman did remember to uh, call the police to uh, untie that one guy in the factory that he uh, just left, and we never see again in the story. 
Right? I guess we assume he maybe called the police and they rounded him up or who knows. Um, I, I agree with you. It was a very busy story. Superman was doing a lot of stuff here. I mean, even he made mention of, of himself at one point. But unlike the second story, this issue didn't feel uh, rushed or crammed, I didn't think. No. It, it felt a little more evenly paced. Uh, but yeah, yeah it, it wasn't a fantastic story, but I did enjoy it. Um, I just didn't really have as much to say about it as others. But Yeah, the... Uh... Yeah, I think the action really flowed uh, pretty smooth because Superman stopped the one guy, and then he learned, okay, this uh, something else is going on. So he jumped to the other next one and was able to work his way up to uh, the main bad guy. Right. And at the end of the story, we have an ad for the Batman appearing every month in Detective Comics. So we've had each of the other three main books from DC here. Well, we haven't had action plugged, but obviously Superman is is uh, front and center in this book. But we've had each of the other, the other three main titles from DC plugged at the end of stories here. If you're interested in reading this story, you can check it out in the usual suspects of Superman, the Action Comics Archives, Volume 1, and Superman Chronicles, Volume 3. invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. The dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. All right, so our fourth and final story for the issue has been titled Terror in the Truckers' Union. It was 13 pages long, written by Jerry Siegel, with art by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy. Dedicated to assisting the helpless and oppressed is a mystery man named Superman. Possessing the super strength, he can jump over a skyscraper, leap an eighth of a mile, run faster than an express train, lift tremendous weights, and crush steel in his bare hands. As Clark Kent is covering a meeting of the truck driver's union, a man stands up and begins raising a ruckus, saying he doesn't like the way the speaker, a man named Carlson, is running the show. Carlson responds by charging off the stage, busting the guy in the jaw, and saying the guy should tell his racketeering boss, Gus Snide, to mind his own business. Later, Clark visits Carlson's home for an interview, but finds Carlson and his wife upset that their young daughter, Amy, has gone missing. As Carlson is telling Clark they believe Snide is responsible for her disappearance, the phone rings, and the caller tells him that if they want their daughter back safely, they need to get rid of the reporter first. As Clark leaves, knowing the callers couldn't be far away, 
he spies them in a car just down the block. Inside the car, two thugs on Snide's order are about to cut the girl with a knife. But Superman streaks forward, blocking the knife and pulling the girl from the car to safety. Placing his foot on the car's bumper, Superman shoves the car into a nearby light pole. After returning Amy to her parents, Superman then pursues the two thugs who are running like the wind. Superman follows the kidnappers and listens in as they report back to Snide. They tell Snide how an incredibly strong guy interrupted their mission. Snide recognizes that it must have been Superman and, knowing that they need to act fast, orders two of his other thugs to get Carlson. After a tap on the window, Snide investigates, only to be jerked out the window by Superman and dangled several stories above street level. Snide's cronies start to act, but Superman warns them to stay back, else he might get a case of Butterfingers. Once the thugs back away, Superman pulls Snide back inside and tells them they're going to have a talk. He then goes on to say that all that stuff about truth, justice, and the American way has just been talk, and he's looking forward to joining up with Snide's racket against the truck driver's union. Snide mulls over the proposition and says as a test of his loyalty, he is to kill Carlson. Superman leaps away, thinking of the precarious spot he's gotten himself into, and soon arrives once more at Carlson's home. Hearing Superman enter and thinking as a burglar, Carlson pulls a gun, but Superman snatches the gun before Carlson can fire, and then grabs Carlson and leaps out the window. Arriving back at Snide's, the racketeer says abduction isn't good enough, and he'll only be satisfied when he sees Superman shoot Carlson with his own eyes, and then hands Superman a gun. Superman says he prefers a more direct approach, and then shoves Carlson out the window. Not wasting any time, Superman tells Snide he hopes that's proof enough, and then quickly leaves. Racing at a fast pace, Superman speeds back outside and catches Carlson moments before he hits the ground. Carlson is really ticked off at Superman, as you might imagine, but our hero explains the situation, and Carlson agrees to lay low until, until things are settled. Later, Superman returns to Snide's, and Snide explains his plan to take over the truck driver's union by making the driver strike. We then have a page of some shenanigans with the police where Superman fills in the police on the gang's plans, then proceeds to bust the gang back out of prison when they're caught. This causes the racketeers to heap more praises on the Man of Steel, but Superman turns the tables saying that he's taking over the gang. Over the ensuing days, the driver's forced strike squeezes the town's food distribu distributors. Superman laments his new role as crime boss, but says that it's for the best. Meanwhile, Snide calls the police anonymously, saying they only need to check in Snide's desk for evidence, then makes plans to get out of town, leaving Superman and the rest of the gang to take the rap. As the police storm in on the gang... Super, Superman realizes that Snide has double-crossed them and busts through the wall, hot on Snide's trail. Superman easily overtakes Snide's car, and hoping to evade our hero, Snide crashes through the guardrail into the ocean. Diving into the water, Superman grabs the car and hurls it into the air. He then leaps after the car, grabbing Snide and a suitcase full of money, and heads back to town. Superman throws Snide and the money inside the local police station. Snide claims innocence, but Carlson, who shows up shortly at the station with Clark Kent, says his testimony will prove otherwise. The end. <laughs> Our splash page this time shows, is once again, 
not at all related to the story, and it shows Superman standing standing atop a flagpole, scouting into the distance. I think this is my favorite uh, splash page image of the issue. It's a yeah, pretty cool it's a, pose. It's a nice pose, yeah. And I just really want these splash pages to have more to do with the story. Even if even if you don't start the story in the splash, I would like it to, you know, kind of show a scene from the story. But we will get there eventually. Yeah, that'll be a uh, staple of the Silver Age stories where the the splash image uh, won't always be the uh, – like begin the story a bit, it'll kind of sums up the main point of the story. Right, a little teaser image. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is this might possibly sound strange, but I've never really considered Superman a mystery man. And maybe it's because he doesn't wear a mask. You know, it could be that, or it could be because I'm a more uh, modern day reader. You know, I didn't grow up with so-called mystery man characters. Yeah, but then. Um... I guess Superman's the only name that anyone knows him by, so I guess his he kind of qualifies because his real identity, you know, is a mystery. So okay, that's a good point. But moving into the story, I love the way this guy is uh, raising a fuss at the meeting, and Carlson just charges off the stage and busts him right in the jaw, right in front of everybody. Uh, yeah, I, I guess union uh, guys are tough dudes. I guess so. Um. But page two, again, we, we kind of start off with a problem because I'm not sure how the thugs called Carlson uh, – how they called Carlson. Too many C's in this uh, story because there's – I mean there's no cell phones in 1940 and cordless phones weren't even invented until the mid-60s. So it's kind of weird. They're, they're just parked down the street but yet they're able to call him on the phone. Yeah, I don't know how they did that. It's yeah. a uh, – I don't think car phones were uh, uh, really around back then either, were they? Uh uh-uh. No, no, no. No, they didn't – no. They didn't have those until uh, the 60s or 70s, so. But later on this page, the the threat to Amy came as a bit of a shock as we really haven't seen this kind of threat against children so far. The closest we've come is the orphanage story from the newspaper strip which was also reprinted in Superman number three, where the superintendent was beating kids. So I kind of wonder what kind of reaction this got from kids reading the books, since readers readers at the time were predominantly kids. Uh, we've, we talked about over on Legends of the Batman how kids reading those when Robin appeared could really put themselves in Robin's place, you know, getting saved by Batman and palling around with him and all that. So... It just made me wonder how how this kind of thing went over when you've got a, a thug about to cut a girl's face with a knife. Yeah, that was this was probably the most intense uh, uh, scene with a, a, a criminal in Superman comics so far yeah. you know, that I've seen. And we will definitely not be seeing this type of thing once the comics code is implemented. Uh, but that's... That's a, a long ways from where we're at in the stories right now, but still. Yeah, and I think uh, the powers that be at uh, DC, you know, at this point are pretty soon going to uh, kind of make sure that uh, uh, really clamp down on you know what their heroes uh, 
could and couldn't do even yeah. before the you know about a dec even a decade before the uh, comics code comes about right yeah 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 we we are not very far away from the no kill policy being implemented for yeah, superman and batman and batman has to uh put his guns away <laughs> yeah um page 3 I really liked the bit with Superman kicking the car into the light pole. It reminded me of a stunt we might see on, you know, Lois and Clark or Smallville where they just don't have the budget to see him to have him throw the car for the special yeah, effects. And, yeah, and I, I think these guys uh got off easy if that's all he did was just uh, uh push the car with his foot into a light pole. Yeah. Yeah. Page four we have more comments about Superman, you know, not really existing, about being a myth or a, a kind of an urban legend. Uh, we've we've gotten less of those, but they're still they pop up uh, here and there. And it's kind of interesting that people would still think Superman doesn't exist since he's been very public in his adventures. I mean, he commandeered a radio station and was making announcements in one story, and he was performing at a circus in another story. So it's just. It's interesting what things they they kind of keep bringing up. Yeah, I guess some people are a little slow on the draw. Yeah. So, what do you think about this scene where he's 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 dangling uh, snide out the window? Actually, in a way, it was about my favorite part of the story. <laughs> really? Yeah, I like what the guy says. Careful, you drop me, and Superman says, "And wouldn't that be a pity?" Yeah. I I totally believe at this stage in his history that he would drop this guy if. You know, if he didn't do what he said, because like we've talked about, Superman has no qualms about letting people die if they're criminals. Yeah, he's uh, uh, still uh, got a, hasn't uh, gotten all the ruthlessness out of his personality just just quite yet. Yeah, I really don't have too much else to say about the rest of the story other than the overall comment of, and I think you kind of had a note about it too, that Superman joins up with the criminals. In order to stop their operations. And while I like the idea behind that, it seems like a lot of people had to suffer to do that. Yeah, that's he, the one thing I didn't uh, like about the story because, you know, how many days is it that uh, the city is uh, w- without any food deliveries? And it seemed like, uh, you know, Superman in, in you know more modern stories might – uh, might act like, pretend to join the bad guys, but I don't think he would allow you know innocent people to suffer you know as long as they did in this story. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And I I kind of poked fun at it a little bit in my synopsis and then glossed over it. But page ten made absolutely no sense because he goes to the police commissioner and informs him about Snide's plans, and he says. You've got to stop them. And then he leaps off. The next day, the police actually do stop him, but then he picks up the paddy wagon and, you know, races off and busts the guy loose. I liked it at first because I thought Superman was going to work with the police, but then it completely turned around. So I'm not sure why did he go to the police only to thwart them when they actually did apprehend the bad guys. I mean, it's it's completely unnecessary and really really only makes Superman into a bad guy in the police's eyes because he's obstructing law enforcement and, as far as they know, a willing participant in their crimes. 
and they never even bring that up again in the rest of the story. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if this was another case where, you know, Jerry Siegel, uh, you know, wrote the story without really thinking it through. Uh, uh, but this was uh, a very different Superman story than I'm really used to. Yeah. I don't know. Overall, I guess it was fairly routine, but it just, um, you know, the the ending was fairly pat. The the villains get caught, and uh, they get their just desserts, we, we presume, because he throws them into the police headquarters. But I don't know. It's just the bulk of the story didn't wasn't to my taste. Yeah, and I guess um, the uh, bad guy at, at the end, I guess he's kind of lucky Superman didn't just leave him to uh, sink to the bottom of the ocean in the car when he uh, – Got the suitcase out yeah. with the evidence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, page 12, though, we have a really beautiful panel of when Superman smashes out of Snide's apartment. And we see bricks flying everywhere and right towards the camera. Uh, when I scan some panels for the show notes, I'll be sure to include this one because it really is a nice, a nice panel. Yeah, I liked it. But if you are interested in reading this story, then... You can check out the same places the other stories have been reprinted, and that is Superman, the Action Comics Archives, Volume 1, and Superman Chronicles, Volume 3. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, wait, from... wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. 
Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from, from Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Other features in this book, um, the issue, like the previous three, uh, it starts off with a frontispiece comprised of a variety of panels snagged from previous stories, some even going back as far as the comeback of Larry Trent, which was published a long time ago in relation to this story. But the, the center image is brand new, and it says it has a piece of text that reads, Superman, America's Greatest Adventure Strip Character. I really like these. I've talked about it in previous episodes, but I really do like these frontispieces that they run in the book, and I wish the Chronicles volumes would have reprinted them. Uh, David David Weeder said that they were in the archive editions, so why they weren't included in the Chronicles, I don't know. But they're they're really nice. They would make nice posters too. Yeah, they, yeah, it would. We have a one-page attaining super strength strip where um, it tells the story of Tommy Blake, who was bullied by other kids at school. But being inspired by Superman's courage, Tommy begins working out and exercising and eating right, and soon is able to clobber the bullies that picked on him. Probably not the best message. Hey, kids, go beat up the bullies. But but I like what they were going for. Yeah, I guess basically they were saying it, it kind of uh, gave the impression that uh, Tommy had been picked on uh, so i guess back in this era it was more expected for you to stand up for yourself right right so it's just you know eat right and uh exercise and you'll be able to stand up to the bullies that try to pick on you yeah and we also while this story or while while the story while the issue had uh four brand new superman stories there were some non-superman features and Billy kind of went over those, so I'm going to turn it over to him and let him go through those real quick. Uh, there was a full page – the Superman – there was a full page ad, Superman Says, where he encouraged kids to use their local library and read good books. And in fact, there were six issues of DC's April 1940 issues that would contain reviews of classic novels, and I won't list them all, but I will just say that Action Comics would review Robert Louis Stevenson's classic book, Treasure Island. Um, after that was a full-page feature, Fantastic Facts, written and drawn by George Papp, uh, kind of a believe-it-or-not feature. Uh, the first one was an original Popeye, uh, which... Uh, was referred to a chameleon, which was a lizard that can, uh, or a reptile that can move its eyes independently of each other. And the next one was is, Ed is Barrett. They, was, not to interrupt you, but is that where they got the name of Popeye? I don't know. Hmm. Um, maybe, maybe not because uh, I'm not that up on. Uh, I know a little bit about Popeye history, but. I th- See what maybe he may have appeared in um, what was it Thimble Theater before this? I'm not sure of the timeline though. Okay. But, who knows? Maybe it could be. Well, no, no, Popeye was out by this point. Yeah, he oh, came okay. out in 19. Um, I want to say 1929. Maybe it was 1919. 
it, it ended with a nine. I know that. But I'm wondering if the name Popeye wasn't taken from the Popeye, was it Popeye Lizard? Is that what it is? Yeah. This page? And, yeah. Uh, the Chameleon, yeah. I'd, Popeye Chameleon, I don't know. yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. That's fine. Um, the next on the, the fantastic fact was about Ed Barrett, who was a one-armed football player who caught four passes and made three interceptions for Cedartown against Rome. Uh, I guess uh, high, I guess they were high, in a high school football game. Maybe it took place in Georgia during October of 1930. In fact, it may have been around Halloween that year. Next, what? Uh, Fantastic fact was about a Mrs. D uh, initial, uh, Mrs. Beach, who walked from New York City to Chicago just over a thousand miles in 42 and a half days. Uh, the next fantastic fact was a common slug has 30,000 teeth, and I wonder how long it took someone to count all of them and figure that out. <laughs> And the final one on the page was the largest grapevine in the world was in Santa Barbara, California. Its trunk was eight feet around. Its branches covered half an acre and yielded 10 tons of grapes per year. Wow. And that would make a lot of wine. Yeah. There's a, a full-page ad for six of the company's titles and a superhero it featured. Uh, of course, Action Comics featured Superman. Adventure Comics featured Sandman and Detective, of course, the home of – Batman. All American comics featured Ultraman. This is a character I've vaguely heard of, but I'm not very familiar with. He was a very short-lived character. Uh, uh, obviously. He, he kind of goes away when Green Lantern and Alan Scott appears. Uh, okay. Uh, more fun comics, of course, featured the Spectre as uh, uh, advertised in one of the uh, uh, at the end of one of the stories of this issue, and of course, Flash Comics. And there was a full page, a couple of full page text pe- features. Uh, the first one was Pioneer into the Unknown, written by Bart Lexington, about a famous actor named James Rowland who participated in a demonstration of a method of space travel. In the story, it seemed like it was uh, set up as a hoax, but everyone involved was very surprised when it actually worked. Except, uh, unfortunately for Roland, when he um, materialized, it was at the heart of the star. But he was honored in the distant year of um, 1982 as a pioneer of space flight. And uh, I didn't um, really read all these uh, text features when I was a kid because you know, it was a comic you. book. I wanted to get to the uh, – right. um, Get to the you know the 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 art and the story. Uh, there was another uh, two-page text piece, uh, also called "Changer of Destiny," written by Hugh Langley, and there was some art drawn by went along with a story drawn by Fred Gardiner. Uh, George Rankin had invented a serum that sped up his metabolism so that he could move incredibly fast, and everyone else around him, he was moving so fast that. Everyone else around him were frozen like a statue. He used his ability to expose the evil plans of a foreign country by stealing uh, their documents and um, putting them on the desk of the president of the United States. And also uh, he used his ability to uh, assassinate 
the most powerful organized crime leader in the country before his uh, power uh, ran out. Hmm. At the end of that story, there's also an ad where you can get a uh, a free live canary by selling seed packets. Live delivery guaranteed. Well, I'm glad. I don't want you mailing me a dead canary. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh yeah, I'd feel sorry for the postman if uh, the the bird died uh, in, in transit. Yeah. We also had a, a full-page color ad for Action Comics, 10 cents at all newsstands. Follow the amazing and breathtaking deeds of Superman each and every month in Action Comics. And finally, we have our seventh Superman of America page, which talks about the contest that has been advertised in several issues and it says they got all got entries from all 48 states plus Alaska, Alaska, Alaska and the Hawaiian and Philippine Islands. And letters are being sorted and reviewed and winners will be announced in an upcoming issue of Action Comics. And then there's the normal information about how to join the club and no secret message this time. I'm assuming because those only appear in Action Comics. But that's it for Superman number four. You got any Overall comments on the whole issue? Um, yeah, the uh, Luthor story was uh, – the two Luthor stories were, were interesting. Um, they weren't really bad, uh, but uh, I guess the one I liked least was the, uh, uh, the, the last one the, about the truckers' union. Yeah, that was, that was my least favorite too. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman of the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast covering the adventures of Superman from 1970 to 1986. Join host Charlie Niemeyer at superbronze1970.libson.com. When we were recording the episode of Legends of the Batman, where we talked about Batman number one, we had John Wilson on as uh, one of our guests for that episode, and John pointed out that it, it's interesting that in Batman number one, there is two Joker stories, and here in the first issue of Superman with new material, we have two Luthor stories. So it's interesting yeah, that both of those, you know, there was the, the character that would go on to become the the hero's arch-villain got two stories. So that's kind of a neat parallel. You know, it's quite a coincidence. But this issue came out the same month as Action Comics number 23, so I will cover the other books that were out this month when I look at that story. But I want to thank you, Billy, for coming on the show. It's been great having you here, and hopefully you can come back at some point. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. It was a pleasure finally uh, talking, be, being able to talk with you, maybe not face-to-face, but uh, kind of in, in person through Skype. Voice-to-voice, at least. Yeah. Uh, I I found your show shortly after From Crisis to Crisis started, and I downloaded all your episodes and listened to them over a period of a, a couple months. And I really enjoyed how you covered you know the wide variety of topics from 
Superman's history, and and I like it now that you're going through the Silver Age stuff. In my comic reading, I I tend to go through phases about what I'm interested in, and and recently I've just really been looking for lighter, more kid-friendly stuff, and the Silver Age material definitely fits that bill. So I'm glad you're you're going through it, and it lets me experience the stories without necessarily sitting down to reread them all. Well, I'm glad you enjoy them. Um, you know, I, I do enjoy a lot of modern comics uh, with the, you know more sophisticated storytelling, yeah, and the very uh, you know the excellent artwork and you know, production. But uh, you know, as it seems like as I get older, sometimes you know you have a bad day or in a bad mood, um, and I find that there's just a certain charm with these older comic book stories from a more innocent time that. Uh, it's kind of refreshing, and it's kind of break from the, uh, you know, all the you know depressing stories in the news, and sometimes the, even the, you know the comic books that are out there sometimes are so dark, and uh, uh, and uh, menacing that uh, you know uh, I enjoy you know, the more innocent, lighthearted stories. Yeah. It's a very nice change of pace. Sometimes you just want to come home and kick back and read a story that makes you smile and, and you know, not have to think about it too much. But Yeah, because uh, as much as I like these stories, uh, you know, some of, the, some of them don't stand up very well uh, if you try to think about them too much. Right, right. The, the older episodes you did where you focused on one particular creator – we're also a uh, partial inspiration for the spotlight feature that I do on this show whenever I have the newspaper serial. Oh, so thanks. Thank you for inspiring that. Yeah, uh, I can't take the total credit for that. Um, I have to thank uh, uh, the Superman homepage for that. Uh, and when I was getting started and trying to figure out, you know, what I would do for episodes, on the left-hand side. Very left hand side of the of the front page of the website, there's like a calendar, and it would list like creators' birthdays or in the Superman universe when certain characters would have a birthday or their first appearance, and uh, um, so that was where I that was what kind of inspired me to uh, or helped me to uh, uh, that that's where I got the idea to do that. Have you noticed if you go to the Grand Comics database at comics.org, just in the last month or so, they've added a little uh, application down in the lower left of the site that lists different creator birthdays that are coming up over the next couple months. Oh, I hadn't noticed it yet. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I mean, they're not all Superman related. I mean, I'm looking at it now. They've got, you know, Charles Schultz and. and uh, Dave Cockrum, I guess he's sort of Superman related, but you know they've got comics or creators from all all over comics. But it's just kind of interesting to see the different birthdays, and there's one or two for every day. So, but uh, thank you again for coming on. Why don't you uh, tell them where they can find you and about your where they can find your show and your other site? Um, well, uh, if you can go to. Uh... <laughs> Just, just a sec. Sorry, that's my younger sister in the oh, background there. That's all right. Um, go to supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com, and I also kind of type up my show notes 
uh, on a blog at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. And you can find the podcast on iTunes or you know most other podcast aggregators. And I also upload uh, each episode on uh, the Internet Archive. And uh, I do a blog where I kind of briefly su- – I briefly summarize uh, the uh, the comic books I read each week, and that's at mypolllist.blogspot.com. And that's where I'm at on the internet, and I also have a uh, Superman fan podcast page and group on Facebook, and there's one as well for uh, my pull list blog. All right. Uh, well, next episode – for this show, I will be by myself again, and we'll be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 23, which not only sort of continues from the story from issue 22, but as we mentioned, it features the second first appearance of Luthor, or the first second appearance, depending on how you want to look at it. Either way, if you have comments or feedback before then, feel free to email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Also, stop by the website at greatcrypton.com where you'll find show notes for this and all episodes as well as links to Billy's show and his, uh, his review site and other postings from time to time. The site will also give you the link to the show's Facebook page, the Twitter page, the RSS feed, and the iTunes link, all of which can be used to alert you when there are new episodes out. Posts about new episodes also appear at the Superman homepage, so don't forget to check them out at supermanhomepage.com because it's definitely one of the greatest Superman sites on the internet. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, home to many excellent Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts, including (laughs) Billy's show, and Billy is actually one of the ones that originally suggested forming the network. So thank you, Billy, for kind of spearheading that. Well, uh, oh, you're welcome. Uh, although the credit for putting the website together, that, that goes to uh, Michael Bailey. Right. And we were chatting on Facebook and talking about all the Superman uh, podcasts that were coming up and uh, talk about the uh, – uh, referred to them as the Superman family of podcasts, and uh, uh, he uh, he thought, "Hey, that sounds like a good idea." And uh, uh, he knows a lot more about doing websites than I do, and so he took the ball and ran with it. Uh, but as always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, everyone, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
comparison and I um, uh, got hired at the paper I'm at now which uh, ironically enough its initials are DC (laughs) it's been published for about a a little over a hundred years maybe like over a hundred you know at a hundred and thirty years I think so those initials have been kind of following you your whole life then, haven't they? Yeah, in one way or another. 